0: I once was lost. Threshold 5. Entering the kingdom. I just had this sense that I couldn't keep this up forever. I needed to make a decision or just drop the whole thing. Maite was in her first year of college. She had grown up a Christian but was dead set against evangelism. She could barely even tell people that she was a Christian, let alone talk with others about Jesus. But during the first few months of college, she felt convicted during a Bible study to help out the two women in the dorm room next to her. These other two first-year students weren't getting along at all, and had asked Maite if she'd be willing to move out of her single room and switch with one of them so they wouldn't have to be roommates anymore. Maite liked her single room, but felt God strongly urging her to help them out. When she had made the decision to move in with Sarah, one of the two neighbors, an older believer challenged her to be honest with Sarah about why she was doing it. Telling her new roommate Sarah why she had changed her mind and agreed to switch was a terrifying prospect for Maite. But when Sarah, overjoyed at Maite's decision, pressed her on why she had changed her mind, Maite knew she had to tell her. My voice shaking, I blubbered, Um, well, it's just that, see, I kind of feel like, the way I see it, honestly Sarah, I think that God told me to move in with you, so I'm going to. Sarah looked at Maite, a bit puzzled, and said, Well, whatever, I'm just glad you're moving in. As the school year progressed, Maite began taking small steps to bring Jesus up in the conversation, to tell Sarah when she was going to a Bible study. I started putting two and two together in my mind. Sarah has these struggles, and Jesus has these answers. I knew them both. I should let her in on the goods. One day, when Sarah was in tears over the pressure she was experiencing in school, Maite offered to pray for her, and Sarah welcomed the prayer. Sarah had begun to trust a Christian. As the spring semester rolled around, the two women had continued to grow as friends. One night, when both of them had gone to bed and the lights were out, their conversation came around to God. Sarah had been reading a New Age book about how everything in her life is connected and there are signs everywhere. Might I knew it was an important moment. It was pitch black dark in the room and everything seemed calm, but I felt like my heart was going to pop out of my body. It was pounding so hard. I had this unnerving feeling that God was not going to let me fall asleep until I took this next step and asked her if she wanted to do a gig with me. So I took a deep breath and asked if she'd be interested in taking a look at what Jesus had to say about some of those things. She answered easily, Sure, when can we start? Their gigs were rich in discussion about Jesus, and both of them told stories of how their lives connected to the text. Sarah loved learning about Jesus. She soaked in the stories of his character and always wanted to go deeper. She had been curious about Jesus and was open to how his words connected with her own life. So when April rolled around, Sarah was more than willing to go with Maite to a weekend retreat called Up Close. The retreat was held on Catalina Island, an hour-long ferry ride from Los Angeles. The first night they were on the island, Sarah prayed for a sign. She told Maite that the pieces were in place, but she couldn't trust that Jesus was someone she could give her life to unless she had some proof. She told Maite bluntly, I am a science major, so I just need some evidence. The following morning, one of the staff, John, taught out of John 6, where Jesus proclaims, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Maite remembers the morning and the rest of the week very well. The whole talk was about bread. Bread stories, bread symbolisms, bread scriptures, bread, bread, bread. Halfway through, it hit me. My mind flashed back to our boat ride over to Catalina. Sarah and I had played a word game on the boat. One of the words in the dictionary, the one that she had picked, was bread. And because I messed up the game, we randomly got into this long conversation about bread. So as I'm sitting, listening to John preach, this connection dawns on me, and I look over at Sarah. Tears are streaming down her cheeks, and she looks at me, smiles, and mouths bread. Sarah was amazed that God had given her the sign. That night, at the evening session, John called for those who wanted to come alive like Lazarus to stand, and Sarah went up strong. Unashamed and boldly, she stood up for Jesus. I could not contain myself as I sat next to her, trembling with joy. I had never seen such a beautiful thing, and I knew that moment that I'd never be the same. This was even better than when I became a Christian. Getting ready to party For all the friends we've discussed thus far, there came a point where they needed to make a decision to repent and decide to follow Jesus. A point where they wanted in, where they decided to cross a real eternally significant line. A point where they went from flirting to commitment, where they looked Jesus in the face and said, I do. Jesus painted a clear picture of this threshold. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Matthew thirteen forty-four to 46 The two folks in the parable find treasure. One has been looking intently, seeking for a long time, while the other just stumbles upon the treasure. But both of them have found it, the treasure that is worth it all. And once they've found it, well then they sell all they have in order to possess the treasure. Entering the kingdom is just like that. It's a thing of great joy and great cost. The cost is dear, but is nothing compared with what is being gained. When our friends want into the kingdom, when they have sought and sought and seen in Jesus what they have always been looking for, they have a choice. Sell all and get in or walk away. To sell all is threshold five. Jesus regularly nudged people toward this choice. He knew that seeking isn't meant to go on forever and that people were often served by his invitation to make a choice. Watch Jesus with Zacchaeus, Luke 19, and you see that Jesus doesn't just walk by him up there in his tree trying to get a glimpse of the famous rabbi. Instead, Jesus interrupts Zacchaeus' gazing and says, I want to come and be in your house. I want to interact with you, not just be looked at by you. In Zacchaeus' case, that's all that it took. He entered lunch with Jesus as a seeker. After lunch, he was ready to sell all, turn from his old life, and embrace life with Jesus. Conversations with Jesus compelled him across the line. Salvation has come to this house, Jesus proclaimed, as Zacchaeus grasped the treasure sent before him. And when Zacchaeus entered the kingdom, there was a party. This is always the case. Jesus said there is intense rejoicing in heaven when a sinner repents. Witness someone crossing this threshold as Maite got to do her first year in college, you will understand just why angels rejoice in heaven whenever it happens. In Mark 4, as we saw back in the introduction, Jesus makes it clear that the journey to faith, like the growing of a plant, is mysterious and involves different stages. But even in our postmodern world, we can't forget that there is a definite ending to the parable. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. Mark four twenty-nine. Jesus loved the mystery of the kingdom, and he loved to put in the sickle during his interactions and preaching. While a truly open-minded, pressure-free process is most needed around the Thresholds 2 and 3, it isn't as helpful here at Threshold 5. Letting people just slide casually and vaguely across a line sounds very postmodern sensitive, but with such a lazy, fair approach, we keep people from knowing there is even a line to cross, and we don't help them move from being lost to being redeemed. In this sense, the fifth threshold resembles various traditional models of evangelism, which call for decision and commitment. The difference for postmodern folks is the significance of each of the previous thresholds. But once they do get to this threshold, they have a very real decision to make, and we can actually help them make it. Be appropriately urgent. Being a true seeker can't last forever. It's actually quite hard to maintain the posture of seeking, as we saw with Steve in the last chapter. So there is a sort of urgency at this final threshold that is right and appropriate. A decision needs to be made. The ripeness of the fruit deserves our attention and urgency. Every farmer knows this. Leave the fruit on the vine too long and it will spoil. There is a definite time for frontage roads to help seekers gain a safe view of the faith, but the whole reason Doug took the frontage road as a teenager was to see what traffic was like on the freeway so that he could eventually take an on-ramp and get onto it. It would be foolish to drive forever on the frontage road, and it turns out it's hard to stay on it for too long. The point is, on-ramps are essential. We need to be sure to provide them from time to time. Urgency is appropriate desperation for something or someone of great worth. It is diligence. It is goal-oriented. I won't be turned back. We must find this thing or this person. When we are appropriately urgent, our strategies and actions usually flow intuitively from the situation. Often when our friends have been seeking for some time and we sense they are ripe and need to make a decision, we can be helpful to them by doing a few simple things. Ask them explicitly and simply to enter the kingdom. If they say no to a call to commitment, ask them why they are saying no. Find out what their questions are, what their blocks are. Honestly help them either resolve or set aside the various blocks that are keeping them from choosing Jesus. Help them focus on Jesus and the central issues, setting aside non-essential doctrinal issues. Resurrection is key, the history of the Crusades is not. Help them see how they are responding or not responding to Jesus himself. Study passages from the Gospels with them that deal with salvation and lostness in honest language. Encourage new believers to be telling their stories of journeying to faith to help seekers see how seeking can end. Before asking them to commit, warm them up to the fact that a decision opportunity lies ahead. For example, in a few minutes at the end of my talk, I'm going to offer you an opportunity to commit your life to Jesus. Some might say that urgency in getting people into the kingdom is manipulative or pushy. We should just let folks meander into the kingdom whenever they please. That sounds nice, but this is not the picture that Jesus paints. Jesus does not want pearl admirers. He wants people to sell all and commit themselves to this utterly fantastic pearl. Jesus knew that it is right and natural to sell all to buy the treasure to pick ripe fruit. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. Mark 4, 29 in Luke fifteen, Jesus tells us three famous stories of searching for lost things. When the shepherd loses a sheep, he does not sit back and wait for the sheep to find his own way home. This is not the time to revel in the mystery of life and faith. It is a time for a determined, diligent, and unceasing search. It is not an option for that sheep to remain lost. The woman who loses a treasured coin is neither casual nor lazy fare. Her mind is set on only one thing finding her coin. She will not sleep until she finds it. She will not take no for an answer. The father tirelessly scans the horizon for any sign of a wayward son. His heart breaks. It is both a hopeful and a sad picture. Lost things and lost people make us cry. When the figure of his son does appear on the horizon, we see an Olympic hundred-yard dash effort to reach his son and hug him. No holding back. These are Jesus' pictures of apt urgency. One problem with seeking is that you just get used to it. To seeking, that is. Those who become good at looking for God may get accustomed to always looking, and commitment to anything may feel impossible. It takes a different muscle set to commit yourself after exercising your seeking muscles. Once you commit yourself to Jesus, you are no longer a pearl merchant. That phase of life and identity is gone. You have now become a pearl adorer. You are a finder. Those who encourage only the journey often miss the point of the great pearl altogether. Let's use a sports analogy. In football, the last 20 yards on the field have earned a fitting nickname, the red zone. Football teams understand that crossing the goal line is where you get the six points, So when you get close, defenses will tighten up and lean against offense more strongly than at any other point on the field. Because of this, and because of how much football teams want those six points, Teams develop entirely different offensive plays and strategies and formations and plans to use when they get into the red zone. There is an appropriate urgency to their plays and an entirely different emotional tenor to their huddles as they strain to get the ball across the line without having to settle for a field goal. Urgency is not just an okay thing. At times, it is downright essential. Spiritual Warfare Spiritual warfare is often at a height during these final moments of someone's path to faith because Satan realizes that he's about to lose his grip on the person's soul as they step into the kingdom of light. In this way, Threshold 5 is quite similar to Threshold 3. The spiritual dynamics are dialed up significantly. Here in the red zone, we have found that calling out a fear of change and praying through that has helped individuals feel more confident about the step of faith they are about to take. Acknowledging that there are no guarantees other than the love of God being alive within them helps them understand that they can still have questions. Practicing Enduring Prayer, see page 73, becomes important again as we walk alongside folks who are at this threshold. Be clear, but don't oversimplify. Our friends stuck at Threshold 5 need a concise summary of what Jesus and His Kingdom are all about. They deserve to know, in a nutshell, what Jesus calls people to and what it means to become one of His. Here we can easily fall into either of two extremes. On the one hand, we can say that the process of trusting Jesus, walking with Jesus, and letting him shape our lives is too complex and mysterious to describe simply, and so we just refuse to be clear. Then our non-Christian friends are forced to create their own categories and conclusions regarding what Jesus really is about. Perhaps they put us and Jesus in the religious box. Jesus is a smiling guy holding a sheep, looking kind. They may easily create such a nice caricature unless we succinctly help them understand the core truths of Jesus and his kingdom. On the other hand, we are tempted to oversimplify what's happening. We cheapen everything when we talk about the conversation as if it is all about reciting a short phrase so that they don't go to hell. Just believe in Jesus. Just accept him in your heart. Just ask his forgiveness for your sins. Just read this pamphlet or look at this little picture. Just recite this little prayer with me. This is not how Jesus talked about coming to trust him. Jesus talked about people doing a U-turn in their lives, utter transformation, selling all to buy the most amazing pearl. Jesus prepared people for a life of following him. If we invite our friends to just pray a prayer, how is that helping them follow Jesus wholeheartedly for all their days? This final threshold, this decision to repent and enter the kingdom, is a part of a much longer process, an intense spiritual, emotional, mysterious process that has been going on over time. There is a sense of urgency, yes, but we can't let that urgency, that desire for our friend to finally cross the line, tempt us into oversimplifying or reducing exactly what it means to cross the goal line. In the short term, it may seem easier to sort of settle for a field goal, rather than to call someone to fully, knowingly, and comprehensively enter the kingdom. But this robs them of the intense cost and intense joy of entering the kingdom. We could be doing our friends a disservice if we ignored the entire process it took for them to get up to the line or if we ignored what is going to happen once they cross the line. We need to be careful to help them connect the dots of their entire process and also help them to see what exactly they are saying I do to. Following are a few ideas on how to be clear with oversimplifying. Number one, the big story. Our good friend James Chow has created a very helpful summary of becoming a Christian specifically written for non-Christians. It is both clear and concise, yet it avoids reducing Jesus to a magic formula. It is the best visual aid we have seen on how to communicate Jesus' kingdom. Check it out. Here you'll see four sets of circles, two on the top and two on the bottom. Each section of circles has an inner circle with two stick figures in the center. The top left above that says designed for good. The top right says damaged by evil. And each of the circle outlines is kind of squiggled out with arrows pointing inward and an arrow pointing down directly down below. And then also one kind of diagonal. The bottom right says restored for better. And it also has a squiggly line around the outer circle but inside with the stick figures is a cross and there is an arrow pointing towards the cross on the bottom left. It says sent together to heal and you have um, the outside squiggled out. The inside circle has a cross and there are eight characters that have arrows pointing outward. And there are also two diagonal lines um, going between the design for good circle and the restored for better circle. Number two, wedding vows. Doug's favorite analogy to use when inviting people into the kingdom is wedding vows. Doug, how would you feel if you came to my wedding and up at the altar, this is what I said to my bride I commit to loving you several days out of the week. I will give up most of my other girlfriends. I will try hard to be there for you in hard times, but I can't promise anything. The crowd would shout booze at me, right? They would want to walk out. Why? Because my partial vows insinuate that my bride is cheap. She is not worth full vows. I am insulting her. In addition, by making partial vows, I am guaranteeing a weak and unhappy marriage for both of us. Just as with my wife, we would be indignant if anyone offers Jesus partial vows. Just like Sandy, Jesus deserves full vows. Jesus is not cheap, and he won't be impressed with partial vows. When I got married, pledging full vows did not mean that Sandy and I had already agreed about every decision we would have to make together for the next 50 years. That's impossible. But it did mean that I would listen to her on every single issue in my life. When we say yes to Jesus, we don't know every decision that lies ahead. But we do know that we will listen to him on every issue in our life. Number three, sports team. Sometimes we use a sports team analogy as we invite people into the kingdom. In coming into the kingdom, you are joining a team. Jesus is in charge. He is coach. Expect him to mold you and the team. How much do you need the other players on the team? Utterly. You lean on the team in order to advance and succeed. You expect to work out together and push each other to grow and improve. Number four, revolution. At other times, we use the language of revolution. Jesus is throwing a revolution. Today, you have the choice to join his revolution. What is exalted will be humbled, and those who are humbled will be lifted up. If you try to get everyone to serve you, you will be last. But if you choose to serve, you will become great in the kingdom. Jesus' revolution is the most thrilling thing on the globe, and it offers hope to you personally and to all peoples. Whatever language you use to talk about this final threshold, be sure that it is language that can encapsulate a full sense of your friend's process up to the goal line and that life that awaits them on the other side. Oversimplifying feels like serving, but it actually serves no one. Talk about entering the kingdom. As we talk about entering the kingdom, there are certain phrases and metaphors that come thoughtlessly and easily to our tongues. This is just the nature of language. Phrases create ruts of sorts the more we hear them. If we are not purposely thoughtful about our language, we will naturally fall into these familiar ruts. There's a couple of things wrong with these ruts. For one, such phrases tend to be old and dated. They may sound just as awkward and random to our non-Christian friends as any other direct quote from 40 years ago would sound. For another, they may not be the best words to use. For example, accept Jesus into your heart is a well-worn phrase that might come easily to your tongue, but besides not doing justice to the passage it comes from, John fourteen twenty-three and 24, it can convey a pretty individualistic concept of faith without much of a sense of Jesus' ongoing role in our lives as our Savior and Lord nor does it say anything about the role of the Christian community. For some of us, learning to be thoughtful about our language will be like breaking an addiction. Without knowing it, we may have become addicted to certain phrases. Years ago, I, Don, received an email from someone who had read a book I had written about Jesus. Our email exchange went something like this. Her, after telling me how much she liked what I had written. I just have one more question for you. Have you accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? Me, after thanking her for her email. Thanks for your question. I have been in the kingdom for 11 years now. Her, I'm glad to hear you've been in the kingdom. Some chit chat. My one question is, have you accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? Me, thanks for the question. Yes, I have been a Jesus follower for these 11 years. I'd like to say our email exchange ended there. After a few more rounds, however, I capitulated and used her words. The point is, there was nothing more biblical about her phrase than there was about mine. Yet she was so addicted to her phrase, that using other, equally biblical phrases, was unthinkable for her. Let's not fall into these ruts ourselves, as this inevitably leads to us speaking in a way that sounds either not genuine, or just downright confusing. When someone crosses this final threshold, they are no longer lost, they are found. Their eternity has shifted, and the spiritual world adjusts to the new reality. As we know from scripture, God is ultimately the one who calls people to him. Every single person who has ever been found was found because of our great and loving God. The glory goes to him, but we are allowed to be a part of this grand journey and joyful conclusion. Not only is it humbling to see this happen, but it becomes almost an overwhelming feeling to realize that God has deemed to use you in the process. Your imperfect friendships, your incomplete answers, yet here is your friend now found. Our friend's journey isn't over at this moment. We'll consider life beyond the thresholds in the next chapter. But there's nothing like this moment. There's nothing like it. Maite vividly remembers the moment Sarah crossed its threshold. After the public time of commitment, Sarah and I went to pray together. And in the most sincere way possible, Sarah said to her new Lord, Jesus, I want you to be my bread of life. When I heard those words, I felt like the maid of honor at my best friend's wedding, cherishing each word of her loving vow. This had come to be the deepest experience of Jesus I'd had in my life up to that point. I had never had more reason and desire to worship him than I did then. This Jesus, whom I was seeing so up close, was capable of anything. At the end of our freshman year, Sarah gave me a letter that read, Maite, thank you for being my bridesmaid. And more importantly, thank you for introducing me to the true man of my dreams. I feel like I am just in the honeymoon of my marriage, but yet already growing rich in the fact that most of my anxiety, tension, fear, and confusion is gone. I know that I can talk to Jesus about anything. I won't ever forget the divine circumstances that brought you and me together.